Hope you have your Bible with you and you will look at 1 Peter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there are some in the pew rack in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, take that Bible with you. No deacons will stop you at the back door and say, hey, give us back our Bible. It would be our great delight to put you into possession of the Word of God. 1 Peter 3, I said last week that the two texts that close out the end of 1 Peter 3, last week we looked at verse 19 and 20, today verses 21 to 22, back to back are perhaps the most difficult to unravel in all the New Testament. But I make no apology for preaching them. Yes, they're weighty, but if your high school student can master calculus, you can grasp this text. Plus, you have the promise of the ministry of the Holy Spirit to guide you into its meaning. There is no promise as such when you're studying calculus. It's worth it to give your best mental energy to understand this text since we are told in 1 Timothy 3 or 2 Timothy 3 that this text that we're going to look at is God-breathed and is profitable. And it's desirable to seek biblical understanding together this morning since every true believer's goal is to come to maturity. And that only happens as your mind is renewed by deep exposure to Scripture. So consider this one more step on the road to Christian maturity. But today, I don't want you to think our task of understanding verse 21 and 22 is drudgery, but it's delightful. Sure, the assertion about baptism can be a little trouble, and we'll try to bring some clarity to that. But what we will see the essence of our text is about is about the Lord Jesus Christ in his glory. Now, if you look back at verse 1 of 1 Peter, the book of 1 Peter, what you will notice is the apostle Peter never tires of talking about and even boasting in Christ. For example, if you look at 1.3, Peter is talking about the resurrection of Jesus, a subject we'll see more about in just a moment. In 1.7, he talks about the revelation of Jesus, that you haven't seen him physically, but you love him. In 111, he talks about the sufferings of Jesus. And then in 119, about the precious blood of Christ. And he doesn't slow down. In chapters 2, the first eight verses, he talks about Jesus as the cornerstone of the church. And again, in, verse, in chapter 2, verses 21 through 24, he speaks again of the sufferings of Christ. And then in chapter 3, verse 19, the second time, Peter brings up the resurrection of Jesus and how he's brought to life by the Holy Spirit. Now, in our brief text, and I hope you're zoned in on them, verse 21 through 22, the Apostle Peter makes three ascending statements about the Lord Jesus Christ, each one exalting him more and more. It's a literary device, and I hope you'll see it, appreciate it, and revel in it, that what Peter is doing is he is trying to get you, the reader, the worshiper, to delight in the Lord Jesus Christ and his glory. Baptism, the statement is almost just an afterthought, but this is primarily a Christological text. We'll need the help of the Holy Spirit to understand it, so let's ask for that now. O sovereign Lord, our Savior, Jesus promised that he would send the Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth, and that that same Holy Spirit would shine the spotlight on Jesus. So send him to us now to awaken the drowsy, teach the ignorant. Let us see Jesus high and lifted up in glory, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. 
Look carefully at verse 21 and 22. And after the statement that will hopefully bring some light to in a moment about baptism, he says, Peter does, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter is speaking here, remember, as an eyewitness of the resurrection of Jesus. He does so as someone who has seen the bodily resurrection of Christ. Now let me remind you of the sequence of events because when Peter speaks of the resurrection, he has in mind a specific set of occurrences that happened on that Sunday. Keep one finger here and look back to John chapter 20 and I want you to get a, a sense of what Peter means when he writes as an eyewitness of the resurrection of Christ. In John chapter 20, just a, a few pages before our text, John 20, we're about to see the appearance of Jesus at the empty tomb. And you'll notice in John 20, verse 1, we're told the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. The darkness of that setting is the perfect counterpart to the gloominess of Mary Magdalene and the darkness that still shrouds her understanding. And Mary, we are told, and I'll piece this together for you from the parallel text, Mary Magdalene is accompanied, it turns out, according to Luke 24, by several friends. Mary, the mother of James, Joanna, and other women who were with her. And the women who went to the tomb early that first Sunday morning were those who had followed Jesus from Galilee. They had seen him buried. And now Mary Magdalene and these ladies come to finish the job the job that had been done in so much haste on Friday afternoon. They had wanted to give Jesus a proper burial. They had wanted to anoint his body, wrap the body with linens and spices, but they ran out of time and had to stop their labors. They had to go because the old covenant Sabbath was beginning. And so they had to go and be back at their homes by sundown on Friday. And the old covenant Sabbath wasn't over until late Saturday night. And this was also God's providential plan to draw these women back to the tomb on Sunday. These women came, this small group of them, depressed, exhausted, and in mourning. And they expected to find the cold, lifeless, stiff body of Jesus there. That's what they'd seen on Friday when the body was placed in the tomb. And their biggest concern, the parallel text in Mark 16 tells us, was who will roll away the stone for us? You remember that Joseph of Arimathea in Mark 15 had rolled a stone over the entrance on Friday afternoon, not to let Jesus out, but to keep the grave robbers away and the birds and the vermin. Then on Saturday, the Pharisees went to Pilate and he agreed to have a stone placed over the entrance to seal it. But when the women arrived that morning, the heavy stone that they last saw over the opening of the tomb is now rolled to the side so that anyone can look in and see. In Matthew 28, the other parallel tells us how this was accomplished. It says simply, an angel rolled it away. On Friday afternoon, the body of Jesus, the stiff, cold, lifeless body, was safely in the tomb. Now on Sunday morning, he is loose. His body is gone. 
And so these ladies, I want you to notice, because when Peter talks about the resurrection, there's a specific set of events he has in mind. And he even has these in mind with a little bit of pain attached to it. Look at back at our text in John 20, verse 2. We read that she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John referring to himself, and said to them, they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have laid him. Now, why did they go to Peter? Because Peter is the acknowledged leader of the disciples. And here's where Peter, and man, we can relate to Peter because he has so many fumbles, so many faux pas. Peter goes to the empty tomb. Look what he does in verse 6. We read, Simon Peter came, following him, and he went into the tomb. This is behind John. He saw the linen cloths laying there. And notice what his response is. Look at verse 10. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. So here's Peter's response. Let me, a lot of you wives have seen this on part of your husbands, maybe. You might be elbowing him right now. Peter comes to the tomb and looks in and says, huh, how about that? Guess I better go back home for breakfast. That's his response. Is, is he sees an empty tomb and he goes back home. Now John has a better response. We read about, look at verse 8 and 9. John, the author of the Gospel of Belief, tells us of his epiphany moment when he came to believe in the risen, living Jesus. He tells us in verse 8, he's talking about himself, he says, Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also and saw and believed. For as yet they didn't know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Oh, John had read the prophetic scriptures that spoke of the coming resurrection of the Messiah. And his confession here in verse 8, that he was slow to believe, shows us the slowness of all men to believe in the natural hardness of our hearts. For the previous three years, the apostles had heard Jesus speak countless number of times about his coming resurrection. For example, in John 2, at the very beginning of his public ministry, Jesus had said, speaking of his body, he said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. What's fascinating is, is Jesus' enemies were quicker to believe in the resurrection than his disciples were. Because the enemies, they'd heard, They'd heard the claims to be raised, and so they reminded Pilate in Matthew 27, we remember when he was still alive how that deceiver said, after three days I will rise. The angels remembered because they say in Matthew 28, 6, he's not here. He's risen as he said. It seems like everybody remembered that Jesus was going to be raised except the disciples. John's forgetfulness until he sees the empty tomb shows us how little we take in of what we hear. This is why we need constant reminders. And so look back at John 20, verse 11, because again, this is the context for Peter talking about the resurrection, that very painful Sunday morning when he comes to the open tomb, sees it empty and says, I think I'll go back home for breakfast now. Look at John 20, verse 11 through 18. We revisit Mary Magdalene. She's standing outside of the tomb weeping. 
More accurately, she was sobbing and wailing. The Greek word for weeping that's used in verse 11 of John 20 is the traditional Jewish death wail. It comes from deep inside the depths of a broken heart. She was in indescribable anguish because she's thinking in this moment, on top of the horror of Jesus' death comes one last indignity. It seems someone has taken his body. Why were the two angels there? Look at verse 12. They're there to testify. And they strictly followed biblical law because all facts have to be attested to by at least two witnesses. This is the law of evidence from Deuteronomy 19. And the angels ask a question. Look at verse 13. That's meant to be a gentle rebuke. Why are you crying? Why are you weeping? The inference that the angels are making is this is a time for rejoicing. The wise man knows what's appropriate in every situation. When the Savior has conquered death and has come out triumphant of the grave, that is no time for tears. No doubt if the angels were to communicate with you and I this morning, they would confront many of us about our depression, our melancholy, our worry, our fears, and say, why are you weeping? Jesus is risen and reigning. So after a bit of confusion, look at verse 14 and 15. After a bit of confusion over the identity of Jesus, Jesus utters, the risen Christ utters one word, Miriam, in Aramaic, translating Mary. And it's enough to remove any and all confusion on her part. Why does he do this? Why does he just speak her name? Because the good shepherd, we're told in John 10, calls his own sheep by name and the sheep follow him and they know his voice. One of the glorious truths to note about this encounter was the first person to see the resurrected Jesus. Oh, sure, Peter and John and the other disciples saw the empty tomb. But the first person to see the resurrection, resurrected Jesus was a woman. It's delightful because a woman's testimony wasn't even admissible in court in Jerusalem. Because God delights to choose what the world seems foolish to shame the wise so that no one can boast before him. She wasn't the least bit important to the world, but she was to Jesus. We know this about this Mary, Mary Magdalene. Luke 8 tells us that she had been possessed by a, a plurality of demons, but she was healed and delivered by the Lord Jesus and then served him. That's the first person to lay eyes on the resurrected Jesus, one of the choicest trophies of his grace. But then look at the disciples who finally get to see the resurrected Jesus. They finally get to see, look at verse 19 and following of John 20. They finally get to see him in his glory. We're told in verse 19 that it's still the first day of the week, that first Sunday. Our rationale for why the Sabbath has been moved from Saturday to Sunday is because Jesus forever sanctified it by his being raised from the dead on that day. There are 10 of the disciples. Look at the text following verse 19. The 12 minus Judas and Thomas. And they're huddled in a locked room fearing what the Jews might do to them. And so this is vital. This informs our understanding. We're told that the ten were there, so that means Peter was there. He was an eyewitness on Resurrection Sunday to Jesus. 
and the door is locked, but the real function of the locked door is to stress the miraculous nature of Jesus' appearance. As his body passed through the grave clothes, it can pass through locked doors. It wasn't the last time Jesus was with them in a secluded room. He'd been with them on Monday, Thursday evening, and now it's Sunday night. He greets them. Look how he greets them with shalom, meaning well-being, right? Standing, peace with God, which is fitting when that's what he had just purchased for them. His greeting in verse 19, peace be with you, would remind them that just Jesus had promised just on Thursday night to bequeath to them his peace. He told them in John 14 in the Upper Room Discourse just a few nights earlier, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. And he concluded the Upper Room Discourse by saying, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. What's amazing is after their cowardly conduct late on Thursday night and during the day on Friday, the disciples might have expected Jesus' first words to them to be condemnation. Instead, Jesus pronounces to them those glorious words of friendship, peace between God and man. You see, the work of the cross is peace. The message that they would go proclaiming is the gospel of peace. You don't have to be a New Testament scholar to notice that the message at the birth of Christ from the angels is peace. And now after the death and resurrection of Christ, the message is still peace. When Jesus greets his disciples with shalom, with peace, this is not just courtesy. No, peace with God, rest of soul, was the subject and the goal of Jesus' public ministry. The dark, wicked message of Islam, which is rapidly encroaching into Western Europe and North America, is a religion which never brings peace but constant strife. No peace either with God or with man. We must remember, even any gospel that's preached from a pulpit that doesn't have its core message as peace, peace with God and peace with man, is destined for the dung heap of history where the Baal worshipers reside. So Jesus then engages in a display. Look at verse 20 of John 20. And what are we to understand from this display? The person standing in the middle of this tiny circle of ten disciples and Jesus is really Jesus. He's not someone else. The nail marks in his hands and the spear wound in his side are incontrovertible proof. This person has a real body. He has hands. He shows his side. He's not a phantom. This is a bodily resurrection. So now, look back to our text in 1 Peter 3. This is all that Peter experienced on that first Resurrection Sunday. So when Peter says the words that our Lord has been raised, that's what he thinks about. He hearkens back to that Sunday when he saw the empty tomb, went back home, met in an upper room with the other nine disciples, and saw the risen Lord Jesus. And so that's his first step in this ascending hierarchy of how he wants to boast in Christ. He wants to talk about what has happened through the resurrection of Jesus. But he's just taking his first step. Look at 1 Peter 3.22. He adds on now, who has gone into heaven. 
Now, once again, I want you to see with Peter's eyes. I want you to see what this eyewitness has seen. And so now look at Acts chapter 1, because Peter not only was a witness, an eyewitness to the resurrection, he was also an eyewitness to the ascension. Look at verse 9 of Acts 1. And Peter's here as well. Peter is sort of like the Forrest Gump character of Scripture. You know the premise of Forrest Gump, that everything that important that happened in the 1960s Forrest was there. Well, we could call Peter the Forrest Gump of the New Testament. Because everything important that happens, he's there. He's there to see the resurrected Jesus. And look at Acts 1, beginning in verse 9. He's there to see the glorious ascension of Jesus. We read in verse 9, when Jesus had spoken these things, while they watched, the they would include Peter, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. After Jesus gave the final mandate, to be witnesses everywhere to him, he ascended. Now this too should not have come as a surprise because it had been repeatedly prophesied in the Old Testament. Psalm 68 reads this way. All the disciples knew it. You have ascended on high. You have led captivity captive. You have received gifts among men. Even after his resurrection, Jesus tells his disciples an ascension is coming. You remember in John chapter 20 when Jesus turned and said to Mary, called her name and said, Mary, she turned and said to him, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. I am ascending to my father and your father, my God and your God. I want you to look at the ascension carefully in Acts 1, because Peter is stacking up the stages of glory that he's seen. As an eyewitness, the resurrection, now the ascension. And I want you to notice the visual language that's used in Acts 1. Look carefully in the text, Acts 1-9. While they watched, Acts 1-9, again, a cloud received him out of their sight. This is all eyewitness language. Acts 1-10, while they looked steadfastly. And then Acts 1.11, the angels ask them a question about their eyewitnessness and says, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? The text is emphasizing in Acts 1 that the ascension was something that could be seen in precisely the same way as the incarnation of Jesus could be seen, the death of Jesus could be seen, the resurrection of Jesus could be seen. The ascension was a physical act in space and time. So the gospel is all historical fact. And the point that Peter is making when he writes in 1 Peter 3, he could testify to each element of the work of Christ. This cloud, by the way, that Jesus is taken up into is known elsewhere as the Shekinah. This cloud is the presence of the Lord. Thus for Jesus to be taken up into this cloud was for him to go into the Holy of Holies, the immediate presence of the Father. This is the glory cloud. In Scripture, of course, you know this. 
The clouds have a distinct significance. Israel was led during their wilderness pilgrimage by a cloud in the day and by a pillar of fire at night. At the dedication of the tabernacle in the wilderness, the cloud of glory, the Shekinah, covered and filled the place and thereafter dwelt right above the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. At the transfiguration of Jesus, a voice was heard to speak to Jesus from out of a cloud saying, this is my son. And we're told that clouds will accompany Jesus at his second coming. We are told, look, he will come with clouds and every eye will see him. The clouds signify God's glory. So Jesus was received up into the glory. The cloud was a visible expression for these disciples that Jesus was being glorified. Just as he had prayed in the upper room, God the Father was taking his son and saying in visible form, Welcome home, my beloved son. The cloud was the royal chariot sent for Jesus. Just as Jesus had a miraculous entrance into the world by his virgin conception, he now has a miraculous exit from the world by his visible ascension. Now, just so you'll understand what's going on here and what the ascension means, this was Christ's coronation day. His ascension was unique. It goes beyond Enoch being taken directly into heaven or the departure of Elijah in the chariot of fire. Because in the ascension of Christ, unlike Enoch and Elijah, Christ goes immediately to the right hand of the Father, to the seat of authority, where he's announced as the King of Kings. Now from there, from the right hand of the Father, he rules his church and the entire world. All rulers are now accountable to him. He enters into the Holy of Holies as the ascended Christ to continue his work as high priest for us. According to Hebrews 7 and Romans 8, it is the ascended Jesus who is interceding for us and serving as our advocate. You see, the ascension follows and completes the resurrection. Paul paints the picture for us in Philippians 2. You have that downward cycle of humiliation, lowly birth, obedience to the law, rejection by men, condemnation by officials, abuse death, burial. That's the downward cycle of humiliation. But then begins that glorious upward cycle that Peter's documenting for us right here. This is what Peter is actually doing literarily. The upward arc of that cycle begins with resurrection, bursting out of a, a tomb alive, ascension, rain, return in glory. This act, the ascension, is a vindication of Jesus. It represents the fulfillment of the prediction that Jesus made at his own trial when Jesus said, hereafter the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Why is the ascension important? Why does Peter bring it up? Because it means we now have our flesh in heaven. The dust of the earth is now on the throne of the majesty on high. The incarnation of Jesus is not casual and short-lived and fleeting. A man in his flesh, glorified flesh, no doubt, but a man in the flesh has gone to heaven. 
He is our pledge. He's our down payment. That he, as our head, will take us as the members of his body up also. This fact is so sure, so certain, that Paul can say, we're now seated with Christ in the heavenly places. But then Peter adds a third element to the exaltation of Christ. Look at 1 Peter 3.22. After mentioning the resurrection, speaking of the ascension, now Peter speaks of a higher step of the exaltation of Jesus, the present reign of Christ, what he is doing right now. Look at the words in verse 22. He is at the right hand of God. Angels, authorities, powers, having been made subject to him. Unlike Christ's finished work, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, this clause speaks of Jesus' present work. What is meant by when 1 Peter says in 1 Peter 3.22, he's at the right hand of God, it's speaking of his intercession. Over and over again, we're told that what Jesus is functionally doing there is interceding for you pleading the merit and the worth of his substitutionary atoning death to the Father over and over again. Yes, my child sinned, but I have made atonement for that sin. Forgive him. He is right next to the Father, pleading his bloody death and triumphant resurrection. But he's not just interceding. Look at the text carefully in 1 Peter 3.22. He is reigning over angels authorities, powers, they are all subject to him. One of the most beautiful pictures in the New Testament is the victory parade that happens when Jesus enters heaven as the ascended one. In Ephesians 4, Paul writes about this victory parade. He says, when Jesus ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. He led captivity captive. Paul there is talking about the victory parade that happened in in heaven when Jesus returned. He talks more about this in Colossians 2.15. He says that Jesus, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. And what this is talking about, what Paul is talking about, is that the victory parade when, when Jesus enters the heavenly gates at his ascension and moves to his throne. It's a familiar picture to anyone who lived in a Roman city in the first century, and they saw the triumphal procession that would have taken place when a a conquering general came home. As the winning general would come into town in a chariot pulled by white horses, wearing a crown of gold, behind him in shackles, shaved, usually naked, would come defeated captives. And in that parade, the general would make what Paul calls a public spectacle of the defeated enemy. And the triumphant general would toss out newly minted coins to the adoring crowds. He would give gifts, Paul says. Do you hear what Peter's fellow apostle Paul is saying? All authority has been given to this triumphant Jesus. He'll build his kingdom and his church and no one can stop him. He magnanimously passes out gifts to his followers and includes them in his triumph. And it's interesting how much the apostles want to line up and use spatial language. No, I'm not just an Oki, you can't pronounce special. Spatial language, S-P-A-T-I-A-L. 
over and over again, the apostles speak about how Jesus is reigning over all things. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 1. He's been, uh, he's been raised up in heavenly places far above all principalities and powers. He has put all things under his feet. When Jesus was raised and then ascended, drawn up into heaven and took his seat, he didn't take place with the principalities and powers and dominions. We're told in Colossians 2.15, he triumphed over them. Jesus was ushered past all of them and went straight to his throne where only God is and has a right to be and was seated at the right hand of the Father. This was the day spoken of a thousand years earlier when the psalmist wrote, the Father turned to him and said, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies the footstool for your feet. This expression, that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father is often used by the New Testament authors as an indication that Jesus, the risen one, has total access to the Father and thus can intercede successfully for you. And his being seated at the right hand shows of his immeasurable worthiness to receive our best and highest praise. He's seated, not because he's weary, but to show he's finished his work of redemption. Since he's conquered death, has ascended. Jesus is now above presidents and tyrants and judges and generals. Christ's power moves in more exalted circles than that of kings and queens. He doesn't just oversee nations or armies or companies. He rules galaxies and planets and winds and waves and seas and stars and imposes upon them his laws. Whether you're studying zoology or politics or geology or chemistry, you're simply studying Christ's dominion. He's above the prince of the power of the air. He has crushed the serpent's head. He is the king of kings. And since he is above all, he will judge all, all men and even reprobate angels. Every knee will bow before him. Every tongue will confess he's Lord. He'll reign forever and ever. His rule shall know no end, whether in this age or the age to come. The brow that was once pierced and bloody with thorns now wears a royal crown. The arms, which were once nailed with a rusty spike to a rough wooden cross, now hold a scepter of unlimited dominion. Jesus can say in Revelation chapter 1, I am he who lives. I was dead, but behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I hold the keys to Hades and death. Now, I want you to look at the troubling phrase in our text. Look at 1 Peter 3, verse 21. Now, I hope you'll recognize, I hope you'll agree with my weight, my scales here. The baptism is certainly important. We had a baptism this morning. Today is baptism day. Because not only did we have a baptism this morning, I'm preaching about it or trying to. We will have a baptism this evening. And so it's like the happiest of all days. But I hope you'll agree with the weight of the scale. That while baptism is vital, that sacramental picture. But it doesn't weigh an ounce compared to the glory of the one who is resurrected, ascended, and reigning. But look at our text. Peter, just as an offhand statement, look at it in verse 21. He says, there's also an antitype which now saves us, 
baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God. Peter makes it clear that he is not saying we are saved by our physical baptism. Do you see that in verse 21? Not the removal of the filth of the flesh. Roman Catholics and some Protestants even teach baptismal regeneration. That everyone who receives water baptism is regenerated by it. Well, we would assert that no one is regenerated by water baptism, but only by Holy Spirit baptism. The supernatural cleansing spoken of in texts like John 1. When John the Baptist taught this, he said, He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Or in 1 Corinthians 12, when Paul writes, By one Spirit we were all baptized into this body, whether Jews or Greeks. Or when Paul says it again in Titus 3, God saved us through the washing of regeneration of the Holy Spirit. So what is the text saying? It's saying, look at verse 21, it's saying the exact same thing is stated in its Old Testament counterpart in texts like Ezekiel 36, where the Lord says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your filthiness and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I'll take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Now, Peter, it's interesting. Look at verse 21. Peter uses the name of one of the two new covenant sacraments, baptism, the other being the Lord's Supper. Now, if you need help on this, turn to your elementary school child who's in our catechids. By the way, catechids is probably the best thing we do on Wednesday night where our children are learning to be far more credible theologians than their parents. They're memorizing the shorter catechism. Turn to your child and say, do you know what he's about to say? Question 92, which many of your children are going to go, yeah, I know this. Question 92 of our shorter catechism says, what is a sacrament? The answer comes back, a sacrament is a holy ordinance instituted by Christ, wherein by sensible signs, Christ and the benefits of the new covenant are represented, sealed, and applied to believers. What do the sacraments do? Any one of our children could tell you. They point to Christ and his benefits. For example, in baptism, as the water is poured over the head, Christ's cleansing work is being shown. And this is right because 1 John 1, 7 tells us the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. A sacrament is a sign. It's a sign of something else that's being made known. How do the sacraments, the question comes in our shorter catechism, how do the sacraments become effectual means of salvation? They become effectual means of salvation only by the blessing of Christ and the working of the Spirit in them that by faith receive them. This cleansing is inextricably linked to the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it produces, look at what our text says in verse 21, a conscience that's free from guilt. So Peter's point by analogy is, Holy Spirit baptism saves us by Christ's resurrection. Just as the floodwaters buoyed eight elect people in the ark above all the other forces that drowned. 
As the floodwaters separated Noah and his family from the wicked, so Holy Spirit baptism separates believers from the wicked of our day. How do we apply this word? I want to make one central application so that we don't miss the point. Look carefully back at our text in verse 21 and 22. I don't know if I've ever seen in my 36 years of pastoral ministry more gloomy believers than I've seen over the last three to four years. Seems to be a constant cloud and not a glory cloud, but a dark cloud, an Eeyore cloud that settled in over the church in America. And when you begin to talk to other believers, they'll start ticking off all of the things. Let me see which ones you would say. Our civil leaders are corrupt and foolish. Yes. The economy is horrendous. Yes. Our nation is divided more deeply than it's ever been. Yes. World affairs are worse than we've seen in our life. Yes, madmen and tyrants are in possession of nuclear weapons. And the church, from Nigeria to North Korea, is being persecuted with a zeal that we've never seen in our life. But remember, look who Peter's writing to. He's writing to people who are being persecuted, who are undergoing economic deprivation, who are living under the rule of Nero, who is a flaming homosexual persecutor of the church. The church is suffering at the hands of wicked men. But here's what Peter does. Here's his answer to that. He doesn't wring his hands and say, yes, it's so horrible. I, I just don't know what we'll do. Look at our text in verse 21 and 22. Peter is reminding them and us that the world is not spinning out of control. That all creatures, look at the specific wording in verse 22. That all creatures, angels, authorities, powers. That all creatures are subject to Christ, the risen, ascended, and reigning king, and they do his will. Evil is not running rampant and unchecked. Jesus is raised, ascended, and seated where he is ruling from his heavenly throne. You can sleep well tonight. Let's pray. Our Father, by this apostolic word, encourage your church today. Remind us that our Jesus is the one who has conquered death by his resurrection. He's ascended on high, triumphing over all his enemies. And he presently reigns over all principalities and powers and authorities. Strengthen us to live faithfully, boldly, even joyfully.